Oh, good evening, brothers and sisters. Good, thank you. We'll go ahead and uh, get started tonight. Our adult faith formation. Uh, I'll be giving you some of my knowledge on especially the saints and just really the story of the church, which is made up of saints and sinners and everyone in between. And hopefully we can find our own small part in that a little bit more clear tonight. And so let's begin, however, as we begin all good things with a prayer to our Father, as we say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, you've called, you've sanctified, you have redeemed your people. You call us to be saints as well, to join those brothers and sisters of ours who have run the race, who have fought the good fight, who have kept the faith. Give us the strength to learn how to enter this story of yours tonight, so that entering it we may find that end for which we are created, that end of happiness which can be found only in you. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So thanks for joining us tonight, everyone, especially CCD parents. Your children are fifth for fifth grade, are preparing for confirmation. And in doing so, they pick a new name. They're really given a new name. A lot of sense we don't pick that saint's name. A lot of sense the saint picks us. And that name uh, becomes a part of us, becomes a part of their identity. Uh, they're starting to grow into that identity as they reach fifth grade. So hopefully uh, tonight uh, you might get a sense if your child hasn't yet found a saint's name, maybe some guidelines on how to help them choose it or be chosen again by that saint. Uh, and really what we make of the saints, what we make of that confirmation name, that new name that we're given in Christ and how to help your child live that out as they approach that great sacrament. And for everyone else, again, a great chance to just look at the great inheritance that's been given to us as Catholics, a lot of times uh, we live with such narrow vision. You know, we live in a small speck of earth, in a small sliver of time. It's easy to forget everyone that's come before us. We stand on the shoulders of giants, said Isaac Newton, about uh, his great discoveries, even more so with the church. We really stand on the shoulders of giants. And so to look back, to see where we come from uh, will help us see perhaps where we're going as a church, as a people of God. So just as a little starter, I, I do wish everyone a happy Halloween. Father Hall and I will be at the rectory uh, giving out handfuls of candy. I don't know what we're going to be dressed as, probably as the North American martyrs because it's easy and it's us. <laughs> but uh, one thing I didn't want to point out, happy Halloween. What does Halloween come from? Well, it actually comes from this. It's all Hallows. Eve. That's where that word Halloween comes from. All Hallows Eve. Hallows being another word for someone who is holy, who is a saint. So indeed, you've ever noticed Halloween always for some reason falls the day before All Saints Day. It does always fall on November 30 or September. No, I'll get it right. October 31st day before November 1st, which is All Saints Day, that so we have an Eve. We love Eves. We love the evening before starting to celebrate, just like Christmas Eve, 
just like the Easter vigil, Easter Eve, we never call it that. But uh, the point is the Eve sort of gets us ready, gets us to anticipate. You know, the anticipation uh, leads to the surprise, the joy of surprise. And so uh, it was tradition in a lot of places in the church to, to dress up as saints, favorite saints, uh, to go on in processions, to go uh, with candlelight. And so you can sort of see how it blends with other traditions to form this, what we call Halloween. But there's a, there's a little, little seed there of the gospel in the church of not just dressing as ghouls and goblins and ghosts and bloody things, but dress as the martyrs, which are also bloody sometimes, and, uh, and the saints who do, in fact, uh, exist perhaps in, in a spiritual realm. Uh, to this time of year, kind of reminds us, uh, the dying of the leaves, uh, remind us of something beyond maybe this life. And so all saints, uh, we celebrate all the saints, all those who have gone before us, the sign of faith, uh, being that model, we all seek to follow. So there's three parts to tonight's teaching, and there'll be a break somewhere in there. Uh, so um, this was our little trick, I guess, trick to you. Halloween is really Hallow's Eve. There are also treats. Back there, by Rosie, coffee, water, and some cookies, uh, if ever you need anything to help get you through. But in the meantime, yeah, three parts. We're going to talk about what a saint is in that first part. We're going to talk about what, what history is in the second part, and then we're going to put the, the two together. Uh, we're going to look at the saints through history, uh, look at history of the church through the, li the lives and the eyes of the saints, uh, again, to help us appreciate where we come from where we are now, and where, where we are going. So with that, I'll open it up to the communion of saints. Uh, what does it mean to be a saint? So these first six paragraphs are all from the catechism. We'll just read those, uh, take them in. The church is a communion of saints. This expression refers first to the holy things, above all the Eucharist, by which the unity of believers who form one body in Christ, both represented and brought about, is made holy. What does all that mean? We profess every Sunday in the creed, I believe in the communion of saints. And there's, I guess, two parts to that. Communion. And saints. And what I want you to see in that word communion uh, is not just, not just what we usually think of about communion, togetherness, but really uh, what the word actually means is, is calm, which means with, and then munus, which is where we get the word mission, actually. To be in communion means to have the same mission, have the, have the same vision. And so to be in communion with Jesus is to share his vision of the world and his vision of history, his vision, his plan for your life, share in his mission. And that's what we see in the saints throughout all of history is that they share his mission. That's what your children in fifth grade are preparing to receive in confirmation, to receive the sending of the Holy Spirit, to be commissioned, to have a, a greater communion, a greater share in the mission of Jesus. What are Jesus's, what is his mission? Well, 
uh, in a sense, we're given three missions that he came to do. He came to be a priest. He came to be a prophet. He came to be a king. So all the saints, they sort of, each one can almost be put into one of those categories. Maybe they specialized in the priestly mission of Jesus, in the prophetic mission of Jesus, or in the kingly mission of Jesus. Priest, prophet, and king. That is Jesus' three missions. Maybe not exactly in that order. I mean, we could maybe think of prophet first. What did Jesus come to do? Well, he wanted us to know the truth. He wanted us to know who we are, to know who God is, coming to reveal the face of God. So a lot of saints, they are saints because of the truth that's been revealed in them through their life, through their teaching. A lot of saints are saints because of their priestly ministry and not just priests in the sense of, like I am a priest, ordained priest, but in the priesthood of the faithful, the priesthood of all the baptized that all of us share in, what does a priest do? A priest is a bridge. A priest is someone who offers sacrifice to connect two things that were divided. Uh, a priest makes that bridge. A lot of times we refer this to the good. The priest makes something good that was split apart, that was divided, makes it whole again. It's kind of like what I do in the sacrament of confession, you know, making that bridge where we separated ourselves from God. The priest makes things good again. And then finally, uh, the king. Uh, what can a king do? A king can make things then uh, beautiful. E-A-U-T-Full. King comes in and fills his kingdom with splendor. He provides beautiful things for his people and he provides harmony. That's another description of what beauty really is. It's a harmony between all the parts. Uh, that's what a king does as the head of his body, the kingdom. He provides harmony with all the parts. So Christ as a good king also provides harmony among his whole body which is the church. And so again, the saints are going to share in the mission of Jesus in one of these three special ways, harboring truth, goodness, and beauty, some special significant way, uh, something that helps us as well enter Jesus's mission, uh, become a part of that same story. And again, that first paragraph kind of stated a funny thing about saints uh, means both holy things And holy people. You've never seen me teach before. This board is filled with scribbles by the end of it. Sorry, my students also hate it, but this helps me stay on track as much as anything. Holy things to holy people. Jesus came to give us holy things. Uh, again, as priest, prophet, and king, he gave us holy words. He gave us holy gestures, holy, holy things to, to mimic on his life. Uh, he gave us all these holy things so that we might become a holy people. So the communion of saints refers to both the sacraments that we're going to learn about throughout the rest of this year and what those sacraments do to us. They, they turn us into saints. Sacraments are 
saint making machines in a sense when we participate in them when we let them change our lives when we when we let them work on us so the term communion of saints refers also to the communion of persons that we mentioned in christ who died christ who died for all so that each one does or suffers in and for christ bears fruit for all and this is where taking this teaching on what the communion of saints are really makes a difference, you know, especially between maybe Catholics and maybe other Christians who maybe don't have the same appreciation for, for the saints. The reason the Catholics have such an appreciation is, is because of what the communion of saints mean. If, the commun if a saint, if someone is truly in heaven, if someone is truly a part of the body of Christ, then they are Christ for us. They are full members of him. And so there's no difference in going to Jesus or going to Jesus through a saint. Because that saint is a part of his body. Just as St. Paul teaches, you know, though many members, we make up one body. We take that very seriously when we talk about the communion of saints and the honor to the saints and how the saints help in the church. Uh, it makes no difference as well whether we talk about someone on earth or someone in heaven. You know, Christians ask people on earth all the time for their help and assistance in helping them live out their mission as part of the body of Christ. Why should that end when that person goes to heaven? Are they done helping the church here on earth? No, all the more so they can do more, more help, more help on the other side, more help when they are there before the throne of God to assist us on this, on this earth. One of the saints we'll talk about is Therese of Lisieux. She lived a very quiet life in France, in prayer and intercession, pleading for the church, being love in the heart of the church. But she had this, this notion, this revelation that she was going to do even more on the other side, on the heavenly side. So again, if we can help one another as Christians, fellow Christians here on this earth, how much more so can saints who have already lived this life, who have won the race, who have kept the faith, who stand before God in heaven, how much more can they help us as our Christian brothers and sisters? So again, just pleading the need for the saints in our lives as Christians, because they're part of the body of Christ. They're part of him. And he said, you know, whoever receives you receives me to his apostles. So same kind of logic of Jesus. They receive you, my saints, really receiving me. So last paragraph there, 962. We believe in the communion of all the faithful of Christ who are on pilgrims on earth, the dead who are being purified, and the blessed in heaven, all together forming one church. We believe that in this communion, the merciful love of God and his saints is always attentive to our prayers. So there it actually listed three levels of saints. <laughs> we have the holy ones that God has called to walk on this pilgrim journey on earth. Uh, sometimes they're called the church militants. Yeah, I better write them on the bottom. You can kind of see the word military there because again, we're, we're soldiers. We're still fighting the good fight. On top of that, we have those who have died. Who are not yet before the face of God, who have 
Maybe they died with some still mark on their soul that's holding them down, that God still needs to purify from them. We'll talk more about purgatory on another night, but that's the church suffering. And then on top, we have the church triumphant. The triumph was this Roman victory parade where the soldiers, after winning the battle, would get to come into the city and declare their victory to the city of their home. The saints are those who have passed through the gates of the city of God. And there they sing his praises. They declare his triumphs. They each have a banner showing what it was that Jesus conquered in their life. You know, we uh, kind of have doubting Thomas. He's a saint that a lot of people know. The one who doubted that Jesus had truly risen. Jesus said, put your finger into my side, see and believe. Uh, doubting Thomas, his doubt is now his greatest triumph. He waves his flag of doubt in heaven. He's not ashamed of it, even though we would be ashamed, probably, if we were called a doubter right here on earth. Heaven, that's the greatest sign that God can overcome anything. He can overcome my doubts. Uh, he, can, he can triumph, even when I am weak. So that's what the saints mean uh, for us in the church. Again, they're, we live in a communion. We all share a mission, a mission of sanctifying making things good or sacrifice through the sacrifice of Jesus, putting all things in reference to him. We proclaim the truth as prophets. We have that mission and we have the mission of kings to make things beautiful, to put all things in harmony in the city of God. What a saint is in a nutshell, but there's one saint who sort of stands before all and We'll have more time to talk about Mary and the life of the church, but, but for now it would be good to talk about her as well because she has a special place of honor. In fact, um, Catholics, we sort of do have these dis distinctions about what kind of, what kind of reverence is due to certain persons. So what is due to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is due worship. Only to him, him alone shall you worship. Him alone shall you adore. Him alone is due all honor and praise. But to his saints, again, because the saints share in the life of God, they're not due worship, but they do share in his honor. God himself honors his saints. He, he robes them with honor and glory, it talks about in the scriptures. And so it doesn't take away from worship of God when we honor the saints we look at their lives, when we praise the gifts that God and the Holy Spirit gave to them, we're still worshiping God through giving honor to these saints. We don't worship the saints. But for Mary, he gets kind of this, it's called hyper, hyper honor, extreme honor, hyperdulia it's called. This honor above other honors. Uh, why? Because again, if the church is the body of Christ. This, this alone, I think, you know, convinces me. If the church is the body of Christ, when did the body of Christ begin? Well, it began with Mary's fiat in that paragraph, 973, by pronouncing her fiat, her yes, to the angel Gabriel, who said to her, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, and offered her this 
chance to bear a son who would be called son of the most high. So at the Annunciation, she gave her consent to the incarnation. Mary was already collaborating with the whole work of her son, that her, the whole work of her son was to accomplish. She is mother wherever he is savior and head of the mystical body. So the body of Christ, the church, began in her womb, began with her. That goes to the mission. It was part of her mission that she was given to be in communion with God. And so to her is due this honor above other saints. Because again, saints are all part of this body of Christ. Mary is the one that, that grew the body of Christ, that took care of the entire church when it was just a baby in a manger and growing up through the years. And so even the church today, a lot of churches are built. Uh, St. Peter's, for instance, is built with these two big colonnades kind of sticking out in front of her. It's supposed to represent the arms of Mother Church, the arms of Mother Mary that are sort of tenderly gathering in people from all nations, children of, of every kind. So 9 to 74, the, the most blessed Virgin Mary, when the curse of her earthly life was completed, was taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven, where she already shares in the glory of her son's resurrection, anticipating the resurrection of all members of his body. That's another important point. Mary is full of grace, is what the angel declares to her. She is immaculately conceived. Sin has not touched her. What does this mean for us, right? It, it, it means what she is, is that vision of what we are to become. You know, she gives us the hope that God really means business about all of his promises, that they will come to fruition in those who believe. So everything that she is, by her special mission, we will become. You know, again, not in our mission to be made perfect already. We've got a long way to go. And yet in her is our hope that God really means to turn us again into saints, to bring us to heaven with him, to reunite uh, in this great communion. So everything she is, the church is called to become. She has to be the first. God wanted to give us this living witness of what it's like to become a saint and to finish that journey. And so again, she anticipates what everyone else uh, will become in the glory of heaven. And so I also like to think about that too. Uh, Jesus, his resurrected body is in heaven and Mary's resurrected body is in heaven. The church teaches this. She was assumed into heaven to join her son. And all of a sudden heaven is now a place, a real place. Before, it's just this abstract spiritual realm. When you have one body there, okay, it's just the body of Christ. When you have two bodies there, all of a sudden there's, there's room, <laughs> there's space, there's direction. It, it's, it's a real place all of a sudden. And I don't know what that means, but for some reason that changes the way I think about heaven. It is now a place that there are two bodies in there. There's room for us. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. There's room, there's space for all of us now. So, 975, we believe that the Holy Mother of God, the new Eve, Mother of the Church, continues in heaven to exercise her maternal role on behalf of the members of Christ. Again, just as Mary took care of the entire church when it was just the body of Christ, Jesus, the babe, so she takes care of the whole church even now when Jesus gives from the cross to his beloved disciple. He says, son, behold your mother. 
woman, behold your son. Uh, in, in that gesture, the church has always read Jesus giving us, you know, the best person in his earthly life, just as he gave us the Father and the Holy Spirit, best persons in his heavenly life. He gives us, gives us best person in his earthly life, his mother. Uh, what son wouldn't want his mother to uh, receive the hyper honor that is due only to her? So there's much more we could go through there, but uh, I kind of want to finish kind of an intro to church history uh, so that when we come back after the break, we can just do the saints in history because we could talk forever about all these saints and all these moments. So uh, first, just, I guess, any, any of those questions or doubts or, or kind of concerns about, you know, why, why do we have such a relationship to saints? Any of those lingering, lingering doubts or just kind of confusion that you've heard other people have? Maybe we don't. All of us are set. So again, your child is preparing for confirmation. They're preparing to pick a saint, a saint name. Uh, maybe ask them to think about the mission. You know, what mission did that saint do here on earth? Maybe that has something to do with their desire or what they want to do with their life, what kind of mission they want to follow. Uh, if they want to still be an astronaut, I don't know what to tell you. Um, as far as I know, there haven't been any saints in heaven in space, I, I think there's saints in heaven. This is recorded as well. Bishop Conley, I'm sorry. Uh, Buzz Aldrin was a Christian. Uh, Evangel Evangel no. Episcopalian, maybe. And he brought the Episcopalian communion into space with him. I think so. That's probably the closest yet, but not, not been canon, not dead yet, is he? He's not. Right. He's still with us, I think. So he can't be a saint uh, yet, but so I don't, I don't know if they want to be astronauts. I don't know what to tell them. St. Michael, maybe the archangel. Um, but yeah, there, there is, a, we, we kind of call them patron saints. Think about that word patron. Patron is someone who, you know, looks after something, a patron of the arts. They give very generously to that thing because they care very deeply about it. So we, we talk about patron saints, saints who care very deeply about maybe a certain aspect of Jesus's mission. And so we can sort of have that assurance that if we go to them, again, those who receive you, receive me, Jesus says, so we receive them receiving a part of Jesus's mission as well. So we, we take on different patrons insofar as, again, they connect us to a certain mission, a certain aspect of Jesus's mission. So yeah, I'd invite you to oppose that. Your kids preparing for confirmation, you know, what's your mission gonna be? And why are you choosing your saint? What was their mission? What does that have to do with what you wanna do? Connect those two. Mark, yeah. Yep. Yes. That's a good point. So father knows that this is a Catholic household when he's walking up and that he's found the right place. <laughs> uh, it, it is super helpful for me. I mean, I, I love that people, I start like, it's funny, but it, it is true. Like I, I would love people to put crosses of G, like marks of Jesus in their yards as well. 
Um, divine mercy signs, I think you see a lot of those now. So, so I think there are, uh, is that at least. But when you see Mary, you know it's a, <laughs> it's a Catholic house. And uh, I guess what I would say to that, again, it just goes, goes to that Christian hope. You know, if, if, Jesus, if Jesus didn't leave us Mary, uh, if Jesus didn't leave us the church, you know, you can you can imagine that. Like, did what if Jesus just came, did what he did, and left? You know, does that inspire the same hope as it does if he leaves us his body still here with us? I remain with you always. Behold, I'm with you always. In a very real and concrete way. Uh, so I think that's why Catholics have always read Mary as that concrete expression of Jesus leaving us his body. Again, Mary is a model of the whole church. Whenever you see Mary, you're really looking at uh, the church. Again, she, she gave birth to the body of Christ, took care of the body of Christ, first moment. So I think, I think that's been the attitude of Catholics throughout the years. Whenever we see Mary, we're looking at the whole church. We're looking at that concrete expression that Jesus remains in contact with us even now. And that this is something that I can be. We're not going to become the son of God in the same way as we're going to become like Mary. Just in the sense that we are, we are promised to become sons of God by grace, but not by nature. Jesus was son of God by nature. So there's kind of this infinite gap between God and humanity. Mary helps bridge that gap. Uh, Mary's place in God's plan of salvation really is unique in that way in protecting it. You know, actually, there's there was a heresy in the early church. Now we're skipping into, you know, this part on the back that attacked Mary. And these people, they ended up not even being Christians, really, not even believing in Jesus. But it started with attacking Mary. And I think that's a really real danger. Uh, if you lose that connection to the body of Christ in Mary, a lot of times what follows is losing that connection to to God through Jesus. So more explanation than you needed maybe doesn't satisfy but that's why i would say um very helpful to see mary in people's hearts i got 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 a buddy that that has a mold and makes them yeah <laughs> you yeah you just call me and i'll i'll hook you up got a got a buddy <laughs> yeah do they not make those anymore yeah one of my friends from high school he literally got a hold of this mold and just decided, yeah, I don't see these around enough, so I'm going to start making all these. Uh, technically, Mary, uh, Our Lady of Lords, technically. I guess you get what we provide you. Gloria Dalo has. So there's, there's like a Christian bookstore by Hobby Lobby called, why I have crosses there too. Dale Price crosses, I'm sure. Amazon is everything. They're taking over the world. It's fine. Jesus already conquered the world, so he's conquered Amazon in some way. It's fine. Yeah, any, any other questions about the saints or Mary? Um, and there's so much more we can unpack. Um, but I think a, a big essential truth to, to just hold on to is that, again, Jesus says... Those who receive you receive me. He said that to his apostles about those who are going to be his hands, feet, part of his body. 
And so that's a real, that's a reality of the church, that they are really a part of Jesus. So what is history then? Uh, you know, in the very word history is the word story. And I think that's uh, really essential to understand what history is all about. It's a story and it has an author, someone who knows the plot, who stands outside of the story itself. You know, God who stands outside of history, outside of time, can see all things, but cares very deeply about what he has created and wants to see his characters that he's made in his own image. You know, a lot of times authors will say that they can see themselves in the characters they create, uh, sort of their own image, their word that's expressed on the page. Uh, there's, there's a very great similarity between that authorship, uh, that human authorship and God's authorship of the universe. He wants to see those characters come to their good ends. And when characters, you know, a poor author will write some villain that just, you know, gets what he deserves. Um, a better author will write this villain who he really wants to, like, come back and be redeemed. And it's sort of a tragedy when he doesn't. Um, and it's a tragedy for God when we do not come to that end that he had predestined for us. It's a tragedy for him. Uh, it's a loss. So to see history uh, with the eyes of God as him being in this good author, um, discovering, you know, all these little arcs and challenges, trials that make his characters better, that bring them to a good end. So. I wanted to start just explaining church history by looking at at least two books of the Bible that really help us understand what church history is all about. Uh, the first is the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, if you'll remember, that's the book that comes directly after the Gospels, the four Gospels, and tells the story of the Apostles, but really the main character of the Acts of the Apostles is the Holy Spirit, who's working in all of them, who's moving them to go and do this, to rise and go and do that. Uh, it really displays, again, that Jesus didn't just come, yes, offer his life in perfect obedience to the Father on the cross. Yes, to rise from the dead, to show us the hope for salvation from everything, from sin and death. Uh, yes, he goes to the Father, ascends, but he leaves us a church. He leaves us his body. He remains with us always. Acts of the Apostles is a great witness to that. And so, again, it includes all sorts of things that we find, yes, in the Catholic Church. We find apostolic succession at the very beginning. They have to choose a successor to Judas, who abandoned the way. Uh, so that's the bishops. There's holy orders. They have to ordain deacons uh, to serve in a special mission as part of Christ the priest. Uh, there's sacraments. There's baptism. There's confirmation, the laying on of hands. There's communion, the breaking of the bread that they come together to celebrate as a church community in prayers. There's, of course, the preaching of the gospel uh, to all nations. It goes out from Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and even to the ends of the world is kind of the, the outline of the Acts of the Apostles. But it's funny because the book doesn't end with the ends of the world. The book ends with Rome. The book ends with Paul preaching Rome. So according to the outline of the book, that is the ends of the earth. And that's actually what Rome was called in the ancient world. It was called the ends of the earth. And that's what we call it today as well when we say all roads lead to Rome. Uh, all roads end in Rome. 
that's where everything comes to. All roads lead to Rome. Rome was important as part of the city of man. God made it central to the spreading of the gospel for the city of God. So we see the importance of Rome as the special destination. Uh, everything is in there. So we get a nice little glimpse of what the church is, but also what the church is supposed to be in every age. Uh, there's this idea of Acts chapter 29. There's no 29th chapter of Acts. And yet, St. Luke, who wrote it, sort of ends the story rather abruptly. It ends with Paul arriving in Rome, and that's about it. But I think his point was that the story is continuing. We're still part of that same story. And so it's a model, even for us, of how we live in the church today. And the other one is the book of Revelation. So this book, often misinterpreted with all of its visions of scary beasts and signs and numbers, um, really lays out what Revelation does. Again, St. John is, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, which basically means he's at mass. He's praying mass and sort of the heavens are open to him. And he sort of sees God's plan of salvation, but not as this history, you know, going through time. He sees it sort of all at once, sort of as God sees it in eternity sort of sees it as the author. So again, it's not just as it's going to appear on earth. So seeing all the signs and numbers and interpreting the, the things, it, it's very difficult if what you're looking for is just, when is the world going to end? It's not exactly what he's trying to give you. Uh, he's showing you what God's plan looks like as it appears from heaven. So what that means is, uh, it gives us this, this vision of what the end game is. It shows us the end of history, the goal of history. A lot of other uh, theories about history kind of follow just cycles. All history repeats itself, which is sort of true in a sense. We are going around and around and around. And yet Revelation sort of gives us this, this sort of upward trajectory. So it's more of a spiral going upward and upward and upward. Each time around, something new is gained. Even if it feels like we're fighting the long defeats, like we're going nowhere, uh, we got to look again with heavenly eyes to see that extra dimension we are going somewhere. It's not this endless cycle on earth. God has a direction for, for our lives, for our church as well. Book of Revelation really lays into that. Uh, so with those two done, I do want to take you real quickly through something that a famous convert to the faith developed. Uh, this is John St. John Henry Newman. He was an Anglican, but he was sort of struggling to try to see how his Anglican church was the true church. You know, one holy Catholic apostolic from the beginning. This is the church Jesus founded. And so on his search through that, he's trying to look for evidence of what the true church should be like. And reading Matthew, he sort of comes upon this passage. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, is like a mustard seed that a person took and sowed in a field it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when full grown, it is the largest of plants. It becomes a large bush. And the birds of the sky come and dwell in its branches. And so he took that idea of, of growth, the kingdom of God as this tree that was planted, yes, as a seed, again, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, which grew and sprouted, and Jesus is the vine, and now it has many branches, many saints. They're bearing fruits. But it's going to look a little different than that seed. You know, it's not going to be obvious. The church today in his time, 
not going to look necessarily exactly the same as the church that was just, you know, one foot tall, sprouting out of the ground. And so he comes up with these criteria of development of doctrine, that the church has a history, that it's growing even today. This is why, again, people will complain about the Catholic church, about all these new teachings that we have. And we, we embrace those teachings. We embrace those doctrines because we believe in this principle of growth, that the kingdom of God is like that mustard seed that is still growing even to this day, that is still bearing fruit, that's still sprouting branches where before it had no branches, still going into places to claim, again, all people for Christ and the birds of the air of all places will come and rest in our branches uh, to wish that we were all just like the church in the Acts of the Apostles, you know, without any property, with nothing. In a sense, it's, it's not the Catholic way. In a sense, it's not paying attention to what Jesus said, that the church is going to grow. Jesus even said this to his disciples on the Last Supper. There's a lot that I want to tell you, but you can't receive it now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will instruct you in all truth. Again, Jesus didn't come to just dump everything we ever need to know on us. Too much. We can't take it. But he came to establish a church to leave us his spirit so that it would continue to grow all the way to eternity. So this is John Henry Newman's criteria of what development should look like. And the reason I give it to you, again, it's a great maybe expression of, of why the Catholic Church has so many things that maybe from the outside don't look like they belong to the Gospels. So we'll go through them one by one. There's seven of them, and then we'll take our break. So first, unity of type. And I'm not sure what I wrote there, but basically what that means is that it claims to be the same thing all through its history. It can't claim to be one thing and then change over to be another thing. It has to claim to be the one true church all through its history. And the Catholic Church has done that. Uh, it's, it's always claimed to be Catholic. Uh, that word Catholic sometimes throws people off. I see it a lot in baptism. Sometimes I get non-Catholic witnesses who are allowed to come and witness the baptism and be sort of a godparent to that person. But sometimes when I ask them to profess the faith and I say, do you believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church? I can kind of see them shudder. It's like, am I tricking you into professing faith in the Catholic church? I wish, but I'm, but I'm not. Uh, that word Catholic means universal. It means the church for all ages. And don't believe your church is that, that it's, it's the one church Jesus established that was meant for all time and will exist for all eternity, then I would suggest you look for that church, search for that church, which has that descriptor Catholic. So it's a very bold claim that we claim to be that Catholic church, that one holy Catholic apostolic church. That's really what our signs should read. It should read North American martyrs, one holy Catholic apostolic church just doesn't fit nice on a sign. But again, unity of type, always claiming to be the same thing throughout the whole history of that thing. That's true development. So it claims to be the same continuity of principles, uh, sort of similar to number one, that it follows the same thing that was given in that seed form. Just like a seed has everything in its genetic code and its DNA that will turn into the tree, there has to be this continuity 
of those things in the beginning that grow into the things of the end. So everything in the Catholic Church, yes, there's going to be new growths, but they have to be rooted in the same principles. So he uses examples such as, you know, Jesus on, again, he who receives you receives me. That's a principle that grows into our honor that we give the saints. Now, maybe Jesus didn't give us more explicit words on the saints. He left that to his church to figure it out, perhaps in the spirits. But the principles are there that he did give us. Same on the Trinity. It's funny, the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the scriptures. Ah, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do everywhere. Father and I are one. Everything is given to us in principle that will grow into our understanding of, of who God is as a communion, union of persons. Power of assimilation, this is a huge one, uh, especially for Catholics who assimilate all the time. We, we take in things, good things, good, true, and beautiful things from different cultures that we meet. We take them in to the Catholic faith. We don't we don't reject them. We don't throw them out. Uh, it's kind of a sore subject, but I think about this a lot with what happened in the Americas. In the Catholic, the places where Catholics settled, you see the cultural expression of the original peoples is still there. I mean, it's been changed. It's been sort of assimilated into this Catholic vision of history, but it's preserved because of this assimilating principle. Church assimilated a lot of Rome. Church assimilated a lot of Greek wisdom and philosophy in the beginning. A lot of the rites and celebrations, uh, triumph, for instance, was a Roman celebration, a victory. That kind of all was assimilated. And Newman's point is that it's a sign of a living organism to assimilate, to take in things, to take in water, to take in nutrients, to stay alive. It's a sign of a dead thing if it can't do that. So it's sort of a tough doctrine, development of doctrine to wrap your head around. It's a greater sign of something that's living and moving and as a body, as a tree that's growing and that it can take in other cultures, not totally cast them away, push them out and bring in peoples from all over the world and somehow they can share this common vision even while sharing their, their same, the good, the true, and the beautiful from their, from their original cultures that God you know, bestowed on them by making them grow in certain parts of the world. Uh, on the back page, logical sequence, uh, again, that just means that it's got to be this continuation all the way back through their history down to that moment with Jesus got to follow logically back and back and back and back. That's why when we teach about the faith, we always, you know, start with Jesus, go to the scriptures, go to the church fathers, those who, you know, originally wrote about the faith, put it into words, preached it. Uh, we go to the medieval age. We go all the way through history, all the way through this logical sequence. It's where we are now. Um, a lot of people will, you know, Break that logic, break that history. They'll skip all those in-between steps and they'll say, I just want to read Acts of the Apostles. And that's what my church is going to look like. Well, you've lost your logical sequence. You, know, you haven't really grown out of the Acts of the Apostles because 
you weren't there 2000 years ago when it was written. You weren't there 18 or I don't know, 1980 years ago when it was received. Uh, you haven't really been a part of the same handing on that that seed belongs to. So are you really the same plant if you haven't followed the same history? Anticipation of the future. Um, this is kind of the opposite side of the logical sequence. Logical sequence, we go all the way down and we see the same thing, you know, growing, branching out. Anticipation of the future, we see that certain things sort of anticipate growing in the future. Certain things Jesus said, again, when he told his apostles, you can't take all this now, I'm going to give you the spirit of truth. He anticipates someone else is coming, Holy Spirit, that will inspire them, that will cause these things to grow. Uh, a lot of Jesus's words in the Gospels, when Jesus spoke them originally, like, uh, in three days I will raise this temple up. It says there in the Gospel, he was speaking about his body, not the actual temple, temple of his body. But that's not something that when Jesus spoke those words, they understood. But when he said them, he was sort of planting a seed, seed that was going to grow into the future. So everything the church says, you know, she's very careful about making definitive statements on that. We think that's kind of funny because there's so many definitive statements. That's because we're 2,000 years old. There's going to be a lot of them. But now, a days, very careful. It takes a long time to say anything in the church. Lots of councils, lots of popes to say anything in the church. Because everything she says sort of leaves room for growth. Uh, you learn to read the popes this way. Uh, a lot of times we hear the word papal infallibility as if every single word from the Pope is, is you know, gospel truth. It's kind of like, well, the Popes intend to kind of leave room for growth in everything they say, uh, looking to anticipating the future, anticipating that future growth. So that's another sign that something is alive if it can sort of anticipate needs that are going to come, uh, not just now, but in the future. Conservative action is going to preserve everything that it is. So... We see lots of movements, heresies in the history of the church, which try to cast away things. And of course, we, we do have to prune off those branches that uh, are not bearing fruits. But this is more of conserving, again, all those things that were assimilated, all those things that are good, that are true, that are beautiful, uh, that seed, conserving that seed that was first given. And then chronic vigor, it lasts through time. So a lot of those heresies died out. The heresy of Nestorianism, you probably haven't heard of it. That was the heresy that denied Mary's motherhood and eventually denied a lot of Christ. Uh, you don't hear about it because it's basically non-existent. It, it, it died out. It wasn't the truth. And so part of the, you know, our, our surety of the church is that she has chronic vigor, that these teachings, the seed has gone on and born fruit, and still bears fruit. We'll see some recent saints, should have listed way more, but when we come back from break, we'll see some recent saints who are gonna show us that God's project is still working. You know, as much as we might fear, uh, looking at the state of the world, the world that our children are gonna grow into, uh, but his project is still working, and it can still work. So we'll come back to that after a little rest. Uh, for our minds so you guys are free talk to one another get a get a drink or something and we'll be back in about five six seven minutes